Section 61 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan, Revolt 3, Part 8. They looked to the wounded. Among the villagers there were only a few teeth knocked out, a few ribs broken, and a few slight bruises and scars. But it was very different with the soldiers. They were seriously injured. The giant, whose eyes had been burned, had had his shoulder half cut off with a hatchet. The man, whose belly had been pierced, was dying. And there was the officer who had been knocked down by Christophe. They were laid out by the hearth. The officer, who was the least injured of the three, had just opened his eyes. He took a long look at the ring of peasants leaning over him, a look filled with hatred. Hardly had he regained consciousness of what had happened than he began to abuse them. He swore that he would be avenged and would settle their hash, the whole lot of them. He choked with rage. It was palpable that if he could he would exterminate them. They tried to laugh, but their laughter was forced. A young peasant shouted to the wounded man, "'Hold your gab or I'll kill you!' The officer tried to get up and he glared at the man who had just spoken to him with bloodshot eyes. "'Swine,' he said. "'Kill me. They'll cut your heads off.' He went on shouting. The man who had been ripped up screamed like a bleeding pig. The third was stiff and still, like a dead man. A crushing terror came over the peasants. Lorchen and some women carried the wounded men to another room. The shouts of the officer and the screams of the dying man died away. The peasants were silent. They stood fixed in the circle as though the three bodies were still lying at their feet. They dared not budge and looked at each other in panic. At last Lorchen's father said, "'You have done a fine piece of work.' There was an agonized murmuring. Their throats were dry. Then they began all to talk at once. At first they whispered as though they were afraid of eavesdroppers, but soon they raised their voices and became more vehement. They accused each other. They blamed each other for the blows they had struck. The dispute became acrid. They seemed to be on the point of going for each other. Lorchen's father brought them to unanimity. With his arms folded, he turned towards Christophe and jerked his chin at him. And, he said, What business had this fellow here? The wrath of the rabble was turned on Christophe. True, true, they cried. He began it, but for him nothing would have happened. Christophe was amazed. He tried to reply. You know perfectly that what I did was for you, not for myself. But they replied furiously, Aren't we capable of defending ourselves? Do you think we need a gentleman from the town to tell us what we should do? Who asked your advice? And besides, who asked you to come? Couldn't you stay at home? Christophe shrugged his shoulders and turned towards the door. But Lorchen's father barred the way, screaming, That's it, that's it, he shouted. He would like to cut away now after getting us all into a scrape. He shan't go. The peasants roared. He shan't go. He's the cause of it all. He shall pay for it all. They surrounded him and shook their fists at him. Christophe saw the circle of threatening faces closing in upon him. Fear had infuriated them. He said nothing, made a face of disgust, threw his hat on the table, went and sat at the end of the room and turned his back on them. But Lorchen was angry and flung herself at the peasants. Her pretty face was red and scowling with rage. She pushed back the people who were crowding round Christophe. "'Cowards! Brute beasts!' she cried. 
Aren't you ashamed? You want to pretend that he brought it all on you, as if they did not see you all, as if there was a single one of you who had not hit out his hand as he could. If there had been a man who had stayed with his arms folded while the others were fighting, I would spit in his face and call him coward, coward. The peasants, surprised by this unexpected outburst, stayed for a moment in silence. They began to shout again. He began it. Nothing would have happened but for him. In vain did Lorcan's father make signs to his daughter. She went on. Yes, he did begin it. That is nothing for you to boast about. But for him you would have let them insult you. You would have let them insult you. You cowards. You funks. She abused her partner. And you— you said nothing. Your heart was in your mouth. You held out your bottom to be kicked. You would have thanked them for it. Aren't you ashamed? Aren't you all ashamed? You are not men. You are as brave as sheep with your noses to the ground all the time. He had to give you an example. And now you want to make him bear everything? Well, I tell you, that shan't happen. He fought for us. Either you save him, or you'll suffer along with him. I give you my word for it. Lorcan's father caught her arm. He was beside himself and shouted, Shut up! Shut up! Will you shut up, you bitch? But she thrust him away and went on again. The peasants yelled. She shouted louder than they in a shrill, piercing scream. What have you to say to it all? Do you think I did not see you just now kicking the man who was lying half dead in the next room? And you, show me your hands. There's blood on them. Do you think I did not see you with your knife? I shall tell everything I saw. If you do the least thing against him, I will have you all condemned. The infuriated peasants thrust their faces into Lorcan's and bawled at her. One of them made as though to box her ears, but Lorcan's lover seized him by the scruff of the neck, and they jostled each other and were on the point of coming to blows. An old man said to Lorcan, If we are condemned, you will be too. I shall be too, she said. I am not so cowardly as you. And she burst out again. They did not know what to do. They turned to her father. Can't you make her be silent? The old man had understood that it was not wise to push Lorcan too far. He signed to them to be calm. Silence came. Lorcan went on talking alone. Then, as she found no response, like a fire without fuel, she stopped. After a moment her father coughed and said, "'Well, then, what do you want? You don't want to ruin us,' she said. "'I want him to be saved,' they began to think. Christophe had not moved from where he sat. He was stiff and proud and seemed not to understand that they were discussing him, but he was touched by Lorcan's intervention. Lorcan seemed not to be aware of his presence. She was leaning against the table by which he was sitting.' and glaring defiantly at the peasants, who were smoking and looking down at the ground. At last her father chewed his pipe for a little and said, "'Whether we say anything or not, if he stays he is done for. The sergeant-major recognized him. He won't spare him. There is only one thing for him to do, to get away at once, to the other side of the frontier.' He had come to the conclusion it would be better for them all if Christophe escaped. In that way he would admit his guilt, and when he was no longer there to defend himself— it would not be difficult to put upon him the burden of the affair. The others agreed. They understood each other perfectly. Now that they had come to a decision, they were all in a hurry for Christophe to go. 
without being in the least embarrassed by what they had been saying a moment before they came up to him and pretended to be deeply interested in his welfare there is not a moment to lose sir said lorchen's father they will come back half an hour to go to the fortress half an hour to come back there is only just time to slip away christophe had risen he too had been thinking he knew that if he stayed he was lost but to go to go without seeing his mother no it was impossible he said that he would first go back to the town and would still have time to go during the night and cross the frontier but they protested loudly they had barred the door just before to prevent his going now they wanted to prevent his not going if he went back to the town he was certain to be caught they would know at the fortress before he got there they would await him at home he insisted lorcan had understood him you want to see your mother i will go instead of you when to-night really you will do that i will go she took her shawl and put it round her head write a letter i will take it to her come with me i will give you some ink she took him into the inner room at the door she turned and addressing her lover and do you get ready she said you must take him you must not leave him until you have seen him over the frontier he was as eager as anybody to see christophe over into france and farther if possible lorchen went into the next room with christophe he was still hesitating he was torn by grief at the thought that he would not be able to embrace his mother when would he see her again she was so old so worn out so lonely this fresh blow would be too much for her what would become of her without him but what would become of him if he stayed and were condemned and put in prison for years would not that even more certainly mean destitution and misery for her if he were free though far away he could always help her or she could come to him he had not time to see clearly in his mind lorchen took his hands she stood near him and looked at him their faces were almost touching she threw her arms round his neck and kissed his mouth quick quick she whispered pointing to the table he gave up trying to think he sat down she tore a sheet of squared paper with red lines from an account book he wrote my dear mother forgive me i am going to hurt you much i cannot do otherwise i have done nothing wrong but now i must fly and leave the country the girl who brings you this letter will tell you everything i wanted to say good-bye to you they will not let me they say that i should be arrested i am so unhappy that i have no will left i am going over the frontier but i shall stay near it until you have written to me the girl who brings you my letter will bring me your reply tell me what to do i will do whatever you say do you want me to come back tell me to come back i cannot bear the idea of leaving you alone what will you do to live forgive me forgive me i love you and i kiss you be quick sir or we shall be too late said lorchen swain pushing the door open christophe wrote his name hurriedly and gave the letter to lorchen you will give it to her yourself i am going she said she was already ready to go to-morrow she went on i will bring you her reply you must wait for me at leyden the first station beyond the german frontier on the platform she had read christophe's letter over his shoulder as he wrote you will tell me everything and how she bore the blow and everything she says to you you will not keep anything from me said christophe beseechingly i will tell you everything they were not so free to talk now for the young man was at the door watching them and then herr christophe said lorchen 
I will go and see her sometimes, and I will send you news of her. Do not be anxious. She shook hands with him vigorously like a man. Let us go, said the peasant. Let us go, said Christophe. All three went out. On the road they parted. Lorcan went one way, and Christophe with his guide the other. They did not speak. The crescent moon, veiled in mists, was disappearing behind the woods. A pale light hovered over the fields. In the hollows the mists had risen thick and milky white. The shivering trees were bathed in the moisture of the air. They were not more than a few minutes gone from the village when the peasant flung back sharply and signed to Christophe to stop. They listened. On the road in front of them they heard the regular tramp of a troop of soldiers coming towards them. The peasant climbed the hedge into the fields. Christophe followed him. They walked away across the ploughed fields. They heard the soldiers go by on the road. In the darkness the peasant shook his fist at them. Christophe's heart stopped like a hunted animal that hears the baying of the hounds. They returned to the road again, avoiding the villages and isolated farms where the barking of the dogs betrayed them to the countryside. On the slope of a wooded hill they saw in the distance the red lights of the railway. They took the direction of the signals and decided to go to the first station. It was not easy. As they came down into the valley they plunged into the fog. They had to jump a few streams. Soon they found themselves in immense fields of beetroot and ploughed land. They thought they would never be through. The plain was uneven. There were little rises and hollows into which they were always in danger of falling. At last, after walking blindly through the fog, they saw suddenly a few yards away the signal light of the railway at the top of an embankment. They climbed the bank. At the risk of being run over, they followed the rails until they were within a hundred yards of the station. Then they took to the road again. They reached the station twenty minutes before the train went. In spite of Lorchen's orders, the peasant left Christophe. He was in a hurry to go back to see what had happened to the others and to his own property. Christophe took a ticket for Leyden and waited alone in the empty third-class waiting-room. An official who was asleep on a seat came and looked at Christophe's ticket and opened the door for him when the train came in. There was nobody in the carriage. Everybody in the train was asleep. In the fields all was asleep. Only Christophe did not sleep in spite of his weariness. As the heavy iron wheels approached the frontier, he felt a fearful longing to be out of reach. In an hour he would be free. But till then a word would be enough to have him arrested. Arrested! His whole being revolted at the word. To be stifled by odious force, he could not breathe. His mother, his country that he was leaving, were no longer in his thoughts. In the egoism of his threatened liberty, he thought only of that liberty of his life which he wished to save. Whatever it might cost, even at the cost of crime, he was bitterly sorry that he had taken the train instead of continuing the journey to the frontier on foot. He had wanted to gain a few hours. A fine gain. He was throwing himself into the jaws of the wolf. Surely they were waiting for him at the frontier station. Orders must have been given. He would be arrested. He thought for a moment of leaving the train while it was moving, before it reached the station. He even opened the door of the carriage, but it was too late. The train was at the station. It stopped. Five minutes. An eternity. Christophe withdrew to the end of the compartment and hid behind the curtain and anxiously watched the platform on which a gendarme was standing motionless. The stationmaster came out of his office with a telegram in his hand and went hurriedly up to the gendarme. Christophe had no doubt that it was about himself. He looked for a weapon. 
He had only a strong knife with two blades. He opened it in his pocket. An official with a lamp on his chest had passed the stationmaster and was running along the train. Christophe saw him coming. His fist closed on the handle of the knife in his pocket, and he thought, I am lost. He was in such a state of excitement that he would have been capable of plunging the knife into the man's breast if he had been unfortunate enough to come straight to him and open his compartment. But the official stopped at the next carriage to look at the ticket of a passenger who had just taken his seat. The train moved on again. Christophe repressed the throbbing of his heart. He did not stir. He dared hardly say to himself that he was saved. He would not say it until he had crossed the frontier. Day was beginning to dawn. The silhouettes of the trees were starting out of the night. A carriage was passing on the road like a fantastic shadow with a jingle of bells and a winking eye. With his face close-pressed to the window, Christophe tried to see the post with the imperial arms which marked the bounds of his servitude. He was still looking for it in the growing light when the train whistled to announce its arrival at the first Belgian station. He got up, opened the door wide, and drank in the icy air. Free, his whole life before him, the joy of life, and at once there came upon him suddenly all the sadness of what he was leaving, all the sadness of what he was going to meet, and he was overwhelmed by the fatigue of that night of emotion. He sank down on the seat. He had hardly been in the station a minute. When a minute later an official opened the door of the carriage, he found Christophe asleep. Christophe awoke, dazed, thinking he had been asleep an hour. He got out heavily and dragged himself to the customs, and when he was definitely accepted on foreign territory, having no more to defend himself, he lay down along a seat in the waiting-room and dropped off and slept like a log. He awoke about noon. Lorcan could hardly come before two or three o'clock. While he was waiting for the trains, he walked up and down the platform of the little station. Then he went straight on into the middle of the fields. It was a grey and joyless day, giving warning of the approach of winter. The light was dim. The plaintive whistle of a train stopping was all that broke the melancholy silence. Christophe stopped a few yards away from the frontier in the deserted country. Before him was a little pond, a clear pool of water, in which the gloomy sky was reflected. It was enclosed by a fence, and two trees grew by its side. On the right, a poplar with leafless, trembling top. Behind, a great walnut tree with black, naked branches, like a monstrous polypus. The black fruit of it swung heavily on it. The last withered leaves were decaying and falling one by one upon the still pond. It seemed to him that he had already seen them, the two trees, the pond. And suddenly he had one of those moments of giddiness which open great distances in the plane of life, a chasm in time. He knew not where he was, who he was, in what age he lived, through how many ages he had been so. Christophe had a feeling that it had already been, that what was now was not now, but in some other time. He was no longer himself. He was able to see himself from outside, from a great distance, as though it were someone else standing there in that place. He heard the buzzing of memory and of an unknown creature within himself. The blood boiled in his veins and roared. Thus, 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 the centuries whirled through him. Many other crafts had passed through the experiences which were his on that day, and had tasted the wretchedness of the last hour on their native soil. A wandering race, 
banished everywhere for their independence and disturbing qualities a race always the prey of an inner demon that never let it settle anywhere a race attached to the soil from which it was torn and never never ceasing to love it christophe in his turn was passing through these same sorrowful experiences and he was finding on the way the footsteps of those who had gone before him with tears in his eyes he watched his native land disappear in the mist his country to which he had to say farewell had he not ardently desired to leave it yes but now that he was actually leaving it he felt himself racked by anguish only a brutish heart can part without emotion from the motherland happy or unhappy he had lived with her she was his mother and his comrade he had slept in her he had slept on her bosom he was impregnated with her in her bosom she held the treasure of his dreams all his past life the sacred dust of those whom he had loved christophe saw now in review the days of his life and the dear men and women whom he was leaving on that soil or beneath it his sufferings were not less dear to him than his joys minna sabina ada his grandfather uncle gottfried old schultz all passed before him in the space of a few minutes he could not tear himself away from the dead for he counted ada also among the dead the idea of his mother whom he was leaving the only living creature of all those whom he loved among these phantoms was intolerable to him he was almost on the point of crossing the frontier again so cowardly did his flight seem to him he made up his mind that if the answer lorchen was to bring him from his mother betrayed too great grief he would return at all costs but if he received nothing if lorchen had not been able to reach louisa or to bring back the answer well he would go back he returned to the station after a grim time of waiting the train at last appeared christophe expected to see lorchen's bold face in the train for he was sure she would keep her promise but she did not appear he ran anxiously from one compartment to another he said to himself that if she had been in the train she would have been one of the first to get out as he was plunging through the stream of passengers coming from the opposite direction he saw a face which he seemed to know it was the face of a little girl of thirteen or fourteen chubby dimpled and ruddy as an apple with a little turned-up nose and a large mouth and a thick plate coiled around her head as he looked more closely at her he saw that she had in her hand an old valise very much like his own she was watching him too like a sparrow and when she saw that he was looking at her she came towards him but she stood firmly in front of christophe and stared at him with her little mouse-like eyes without speaking a word christophe knew her she was a little milkmaid at lorchen's farm pointing to the valise he said that is mine isn't it the girl did not move and replied cunningly i'm not sure where do you come from first of all boor and who sent it you lorchen come give it me the little girl held out the valise there it is and she added oh but i knew you at once what were you waiting for then i was waiting for you to tell me that it was you and lorchen asked christophe why didn't she come the girl did not reply christophe understood that she did not want to say anything among all the people they had first to pass through the customs when that was done christophe took the girl to the end of the platform the police came said the girl now very talkative they came almost as soon as you had gone 
They went into all the houses. They questioned everybody, and they arrested Big Sammy and Christian and old Caspar, and also Melanie and Gertrude, though they declared they had done nothing. And they wept, and Gertrude scratched the gendarme. It was not any good them saying that you had done it all. I exclaimed Christophe. Oh, yes, said the girl quietly. It was no good, as you had gone. Then they looked for you everywhere and hunted for you in every direction. And Lorcan? Lorcan was not there. She came back afterwards, after she had been to the town. Did she see my mother? Yes. Here is the letter. And she wanted to come herself. But she was arrested, too. How did you manage to come? Well, she came back to the village without being seen by the police, and she was going to set out again. But Ermina, Gertrude's sister, denounced her. They came to arrest her. Then, when she saw the gendarme coming, she went up to her room and shouted that she would come down in a minute, that she was dressing. I was in the vineyard behind the house. She called to me from the window. Lydia! Lydia! I went to her. She threw down your valise and the letter which your mother had given her, and she explained where I should find you. I ran, and here I am. Didn't she say anything more? Yes. She told me to give you this shawl, to show you that I came from her. Christophe recognized the white shawl with the red spots and embroidered flowers which Lorcan had tied round her head when she left him on the night before. The naive improbability of the excuse she had made for sending him such a love token did not make him smile. Now, said the girl, here is the return train. I must go home. Good night. Wait, said Christophe. And the fare, what did you do about that? Lorcan gave it me. Take this said Christophe, pressing a few pieces of money into her hand. He held her back as she was trying to go. And then, he said, he stooped and kissed her cheeks. The girl affected to protest. Don't mind, said Christophe jokingly. It was not for you. Oh, I know that, said the girl mockingly. It was for Lorcan. It was not only Lorcan that Christophe kissed, as he kissed the little milkmaid's chubby cheeks. It was all Germany. The girl slipped away and ran towards the train, which was just going. She hung out of the window and waved her handkerchief to him until she was out of sight. He followed with his eyes the rustic messenger who had brought him, for the last time, the breath of his country and of those he loved. When she had gone, he found himself utterly alone, this time a stranger in a strange land. He had in his hands his mother's letter and the shawl love token. He pressed the shawl to his breast and tried to open the letter. But his hands trembled. What would he find in it? What suffering would be written in it? No, he could not bear the sorrowful words of reproach which already he seemed to hear. He would retrace his steps. At last he unfolded the letter and read, My poor child, do not be anxious about me. I will be wise. God has punished me. I must not be selfish and keep you here. Go to Paris. Perhaps it will be better for you. Do not worry about me. I can manage somehow. The chief thing is that you should be happy. I kiss you. Mother, write to me when you can. Christophe sat down on his valise and wept. The porter was shouting the train for Paris. The heavy train was slowing down with a terrific noise. Christophe dried his tears, got up and said, I must go. He looked at the sky in the direction in which Paris must be. The sky, dark everywhere, was even darker there. 
It was like a dark chasm. Christophe's heart ached, but he said again, I must go. He climbed into the train and, leaning out of the window, went on looking at the menacing horizon. Oh, Paris, he thought, Paris, come to my aid. Save me. Save my thoughts. The thick fog grew denser still. Behind Christophe, above the country he was leaving, a little patch of sky, pale blue, large, like two eyes, like the eyes of Sabina, smiled sorrowfully through the heavy veil of clouds, and then was gone. The train departed. Rain fell. Night fell. End of section 61 End of Jean-Christophe, volume 1 By Romain Roland Translated by Gilbert Canaan.